0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Srivatsan Prakash is the host of the Market Champions Podcast and one of the best-read people in the finance industry. You can follow him on Twitter at Elite underscore Investor. In this conversation, we discuss George Soros breaking the British pound. Paul Tudor Jones in the 1987 crash, Andy Krieger with the Kiwi dollar, David Tepper during the global financial crisis, John Paulson using credit default swaps, and John Arnold trading natural gas in 2006. These are some of the all-time greatest trades that have ever happened in finance, and Srivatsan does a great job breaking them down. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. But before we get into this episode, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is BlockFi. BlockFi provides financial products for crypto investors. Those products include a high-yield interest account, a U.S. dollar loan product where you can deposit crypto, and they give you a U.S. dollar loan against your crypto collateral, and a no-fee cryptocurrency exchange. BlockFi is also launching a new Bitcoin Rewards credit card. It's a normal credit card, but when you swipe it, you get Bitcoin back rather than cashback or airline miles. To sign up for this waitlist or use any of their other products, go to blockfi.com slash pomp. Again, blockfi.com slash pomp. Next up is Choice. Choice is rebuilding the way you approach retirement, which starts with making it simple to include Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in your savings. More than 20,000 Bitcoiners, myself included, have already signed up to start investing. To celebrate Tax Day being moved back to May 17th, I'm partnering with Choice to give away $62.50 of free Bitcoin to anyone who opens and funds an account with a minimum of $100 before May 17th. Whether you want to open a traditional or Roth IRA, all you have to do is sign up fund your account, and Choice will give you $62.50 of tax-advantaged Bitcoin. Don't leave free Bitcoin on the table. Head on over to retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Again, that's retirewithchoice.com slash pomp and sign up for an account today. And one more thing, you know how I feel about this, but if you have a pro that manages your money, don't take any BS. Choice has tools for them too. Take back control today and visit retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Go check it out. I use it and I think you'll be a happy user too. Last but not least is Gemini. Gemini is a leading regulated cryptocurrency exchange, wallet, and custodian that makes it simple and secure to buy Bitcoin, Ether, and over 30 other cryptocurrencies. Offering industry-leading security, insurance, and uptime, Gemini is the go-to trusted platform for beginner and sophisticated investors alike. Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, who are the founders of Gemini, have done a great job making sure that not only do they have industry-leading security, but they also have really helped regulators come up with frameworks around the cryptocurrency industry. I'm a big fan of what Cameron, Tyler, and the rest of the team have built at Gemini, so I highly suggest you go check it out. You can open a free account in under three minutes, at Gemini.com slash Pomp and they'll give you $20 of Bitcoin after you trade 100 bucks. That's right. If you open a free account in under three minutes at Gemini.com slash Pomp, you'll get 20 bucks. You just got to trade $100. It's free Bitcoin if you go and you'd make that trade. So go check it out. Gemini.com slash Pomp. I think you'll really enjoy the experience. All right, let's get in this episode with Srivatsan. I really hope that you enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Srivatsan here with me. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you so much for having me, it's awesome to be here.
0: For sure. Uh, before we get into the six most legendary trades of all time, uh, I want everyone to just know a little bit more about you. Tell us a little bit about your background, how old you are, and what you spend your day doing.
1: So uh, my name is Shavatsen, I'm 17 right now. So I sort of got into the world of finance at, uh, at about 13 or 14. So it was basically, it was basically sort of an intersection of my interest back then. So I was really interested in economics, was also really interested in sort of geopolitics and making money as well. So uh, it sort of all intersected. And, you know, I started reading about investing, about Warren Buffett, value investing, which is sort of what I, which is sort of what I do. So I spend a lot of time looking at annual reports, looking at you know, company numbers, the fundamentals and so on and so forth. And so so that's sort of you know, how I got into finance and, uh, I, saw, I also run a podcast called Market Champions, which I featured you on. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but I had you on, I believe, about four or five months ago. Um, so that was pretty cool. And, you know, yeah, I feature all kinds of traders, you know, people who do equities, people who do you know, currencies and whatnot. Uh, and I spend basically most of my day, number one, doing my regular school stuff and then looking at, you know, annual reports, interviewing people and, you know, so on and so forth. So that's sort of what I do.
0: I love it. Uh, I wanted to bring you on the podcast because you recently tweeted uh, four of the most legendary trades of all time, and then we're going to add two more for uh, for this episode. Uh, But maybe let's just start with the first one. Uh, You said George Soros and the Bank of England and breaking the pound. Maybe tell us that story real quick.
1: Absolutely. So that's that's probably the single most legendary trade of all time. Uh, Pretty much, you know, everyone who works on Wall Street uh, probably knows the story really well. So back then. And before now, before this trade, Soros was not actually you know, very well known. He's, he was not as well known as he is today. So back then there was this exchange rate mechanism. So what, what it basically did was it said that you know, the pound has to trade between 2.78 Deutschmarks and 3.13 Marks. And, you know, back then in Germany, uh, the currency was Deutschmark and not the Euro as it is today. And so after the reunification of Germany, so when Eastern, East Germany and West Germany, uh, you know, They reconciled and they reunited. Uh, The the, the German central bank raised interest rates all the way up because they were scared that, you know, they're going to see a lot of inflation. And at the the same time, the UK economy was actually in recession, which means that the right policy in uh, the UK would be to have lower rates so that, you know, it stimulates growth and whatnot. But what ended up happening was the Bank of England uh, had to actually maintain, uh, you know, this, uh, this band or this trading band so that, uh, because when you have lower interest rates, what happens is your currency goes lower. When you have higher interest rates, your currency goes higher. And so since Germany had really high interest rates, their currency was all the way at the top of the band. So it was rising against the pound. And so what Soros thought was that eventually Britain would have to reduce rates so that they're able to get out of this recession. And when they do reduce rates, um, Britain would, uh, would eventually see the pound fall out of the exchange rate mechanism. And to add to this, number one, uh, the president of the Bundesbank, the German central bank, said that you know the pound could come under pressure and could possibly be devalued. So you know that sort of added to the bearish sentiment. Another thing was that the, the chief of the BOE at that time, I can't remember his name right now, but he said that he was going to spend about $15 billion defending uh, the Great British Pound and defending this exchange rate mechanism. And sort of thought to himself, Hey, that's the exact amount of pounds that I was going to sell. So Soros himself wanted to sell about 15 billion pounds, uh, $15 billion worth of pounds. So the person who actually found this trade was Stanley Druckenmiller, who used to work for Soros at the time. And, you know, funny enough, the story goes that, you know, Stanley Druckenmiller had found this, uh, had found this trade and he, uh, walks into Soros's office and he tells Soros about it and uh, Soros, looks at him so, uh, you know, sort of so menacingly, you know, Stanley Chuck and Miller thought that Soros was just about to rip apart his entire thesis. And what ended up happening was Soros said that this was a once in a lifetime bet. And while Stanley Chuckenmiller had about uh, $1 billion worth of, you know, position on it, Soros told him we, uh, he had to 10X that to 10 billion, to 15 billion. And they spent a lot of time actually just sitting there selling the pound to whoever would buy it. And, you know, this was sort of a once-in-a-lifetime trade. And, you know, you're able to also see that it's a very asymmetric trade. So if, the, if you know, if Stanley Schuckenmuller was wrong and, you know, the ERN was able to continue, the maximum he would lose is whatever the difference is in the band. So it can go higher than whatever the limit on the band is. So there's only a maximum loss there. However, the maximum profit was unlimited because the, uh, because the pound could just collapse and, you know, it could get absolutely destroyed. And... In the and the and in the middle of September nineteen ninety two, when uh, I believe it's called Black Wednesday happened, um, everyone was just simply trying to sit there selling pounds. And there was a there's another extremely famous macro trader. His name was Louis Bacon. And on that day, he was able to find you know people to sell uh, people to sell pounds to. But then you know Soros was unable to find people to sell pounds to. And you know he was very very pissed off that you know. Lewis Bacon was able to find people to take the other side of the trade, but he was not. And, you know, that sort of, and, you know, eventually the UK government and the central bank realized that they're trying to save uh, the, the exchange rate mechanism was uh, futile and and the currency would eventually have to be devalued. So eventually they ended up actually devaluing the currency. And, you know, that ended up being one of the most legendary trades of all time. And Soros ended up making about one to one and a half billion dollars in profit.
0: Absolutely insane, right? To not only find the trade, but also to kind of have the courage to uh, to act on it and do it in size and conviction, which uh, which takes you know what is a a pretty good idea, obviously, uh, and makes it a great trade, is because of that courage and conviction they have to act. Another example of this is Paul Tudor Jones in 1987. Uh, he essentially predicted the crash of 1987 and was able to position himself to profit very handsomely from it. Tell us that story.
1: Okay, so Paul Tudor Jones. As we all know, he's a very very famous trader. Uh, so, actually, in 1987, what he found out that was that the way the market was moving was actually very very similar to what was going on in 1929, uh, which was right before the Great Depression. He saw that the correlations between you know the way price was moving in 1987 versus that in 1929 was actually you know very very close. And you know he did a lot of other kind of data analysis. So he sort of looked at brokerage reports, he looked at sales data and whatnot, and he found out that. No, it was very similar uh, when you look at 1929 when you look at 1987 uh, those two they were extremely similar and about two weeks before uh black monday happened in october 1987 uh he started to aggressively short sell uh the market he started taking this position before anyone you know realized that everything was going to go bust and so the cost is usually said to be portfolio insurance. So basically what a portfolio insurance does, it's sort of like a stop loss. So it says that if the market declines this much, you no, know, I'm going to uh, resell everything. And so there was so one week before Black Monday, the market was down about 9%. And that sort of triggered every single uh, portfolio insurance model. And so everyone ended up uh, selling uh, their stock. And eventually on the Monday, on Black Monday, Uh, the market fell about 22% or so. And uh, on the Friday before Black Monday, after the market closed, uh, Soros actually walked into Stanley Druckenmiller's office. Now, Druckenmiller tells the story to Jack Schwager in the book, The New Market Wizard. So Druckenmiller, who's actually very, very long, so he had a long position he... He made money if, you know, if uh, the market went up, realized that the market was going to collapse after seeing Paul Tudor Jones' study. And on Black Monday, actually in the morning, there wasn't much of a move. It was kind of flattish. So he was able to flip his position from net long to net short. So he was able to start, he would would make money if prices started to collapse. And he ended up making a big profit on Black Monday. And meanwhile, you know, George Soros lost his shirt. because George Soros was way too big, to, you know, to be able to flip his position as quickly as Stanley Druckenmiller was able to, and you know, uh, Paul Tudor Jones made about a hundred million dollars from this trade. And you know, you can actually read a lot more about this trade in Sebastian Mallaby's book, *More Money Than God*, which is an excellent book about hedge funds. And there's also a documentary about this that tends to, you know, surface from time to time, but you know, usually it's usually taken down immediately. But uh, you know that's a, it's a very exciting documentary and i've watched it a couple of times i think you know that's something everyone should watch
0: yeah it's uh it's an incredible story especially when you start to realize that a lot of the uh, the legendary macro traders uh, they essentially were sharing the trades with each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, not only was it uh, information that could be shared, but two was uh, you had to be able to act uh, and be able to act within a certain time frame uh, and with that conviction again. And so in that situation right. where George Soros uh, was able to break the pounds, but this time he couldn't switch from uh, from long to short ends up actually hurting him, uh, which is uh, very interesting. Let's talk about uh, the Kiwi dollar trade uh, and Andy Krieger, Tell us that story.
1: So uh, Andy Kreiger was a trader at Bankers Trust, which used to be a bank in New York, but then eventually it you know got bought out by Deutsche Bank. So you know typically currency traders would take you know 20 million, 25 million, that kind of position, but then Andy Kreiger was actually made a, would take positions that were 10x that, so about 200 to 50 million. And on top of that, Andy Kreiger in general was a very very successful trader. And you know his capital limit was about 700 billion dollars, and so you know the New Zealand dollar was a relatively new currency. And what ended up happening was that the New Zealand dollar rose about 40% against the U.S. dollar from 1986 to uh, 1987. And so Andy Krieger analyzed it and figured out that the New Zealand dollar was extremely overvalued, and you know it was going to go down. And so when he when he actually showed it, It is a he shorted it with a massive amount of leverage. So he used about 400 to one leverage. That means that for every dollar he put up, he got to borrow 400 dollars from his broker. And his short on the kiwi dollars was actually much greater than the money supply of New Zealand. So, which is which is pretty insane if you think about it, because it's greater than the money supply. So he basically shorted more New Zealand dollars than there are New Zealand dollars. And, you know, the finance minister of New Zealand actually called up Andy Krager's boss, or it is claimed that he called up Andy Krager's boss to say, get the F off our currency, little effort. Uh And, you know, Krager made a massive profit; he made about $300 million on this trade. And, you know, needless to say, you know, he went and worked for George Soros, who's pretty much the greatest currency trader to, to ever exist. So I think so yeah. I think that's a pretty it, insane story as well.
0: It, it, it's incredible because it basically was like a naked short to some degree, mm-hmm. right? Where uh, they were able to short more than the outstanding uh, circulating uh, currency. And so when you start to see this, it's just understanding the imperfections in the market or the opportunities in the market. And again, courage and conviction to act and uh, and, and put the position on, do it in size. Um, and while you're risking capital, if you're right, you end up capturing the w- reward,
1: Right. And, you know, Stanley Chakramil actually makes that point in another interview where he says that, you know, when he went to work for Soros, you know, he thought that he would learn, you know, what drives the euro, what drives the yen, what drives the markets in, you know, Russia. But, you know, but the only thing that he really learned was that, you know, when you know you're right and you're almost 100% sure that you're right, then, you know, you should absolutely bet the house on, you know, whatever bet it is. So, you know, for example, Soros was almost 100% sure that, the, uh, the, you know, the Bank of England would have to uh, pull the pan out of the exchange rate mechanism. So he rented pretty much better, uh, but the entire house, he put about $10 billion, which is massive. And that's, uh, and you know, that's sort of the major lesson that Stanley Jacques Miller learned when he was at Soros.
0: For sure. Uh, the next story uh, is David Tepper during the global financial crisis uh, and the big banks. Pretty much everyone was uh, fairly concerned about the big banks. Some of them had failed. Uh, there was a concern that there was going to be like the nationalization of banks. But uh, mm-hmm. David Tepper stepped in and tell us this story.
1: Right. So David Tepper in general is sort of a distress kind of guy, a distressed stuff investor. So, you know, when, when companies are distressed, he tends to go and buy their debt and buy their stocks, especially when the chances of recovery are quite great. And so when he saw, so back in 2008 or nine during the great financial crisis, everyone thought that the banks would be nationalized, just like uh, they were during the Great Depression. But, you know, the officials had no, you know, they had uh, no reason to, uh, or no intention to actually nationalize the banks. And the government released a white paper called the Financial Stability Plan. And, you know, when Tepper read that, he realized that the banks would have to be saved and so most people believed the US government wouldn't nationalize the banks but you know, not Tepper you know, Tepper thought that they would not nationalize the banks. They thought, he thought that the banks would eventually bounce back. you know Tepper was able to buy Citigroup for about 79 cents Bank of America for about 372 or so um, you know, he was he was able to buy a billion dollars worth of commercial you know market-backed securities which had pretty much you know, been the cause of the, uh, been the cause of the great financial crisis but um, at a ridiculously cheap price, so he paid 9 cents on the dollar for every dollar of actual commercial mortgage-backed securities, and he paid only 9 cents for it, and he bought a lot of distressed debt as well. So he was able to find you know, companies that were distressed, companies that were you know, on the verge of bankruptcy, but, and he bought a lot of their debt. and. Uh, the entire trade uh, made seven billion dollars for his fund, Appaloosa Management, and you know, Tepper personally he made about four billion dollars. And you know, in my thread, I put that into perspective. So, you know, if Tepper actually worked twenty-four hours a day for three hundred and sixty-five days that year, he would make four hundred and fifty-seven thousand dollars every single hour that he works, which is absolutely insane. Because you know, the average American is probably not going to make four fifty-seven thousand dollars in a year, but he made it never, in, in, you know, he would make it in a single hour if you, if you put that into perspective. So I think that's another extremely insane trade that was made.
0: It's unreal. And David Tepper is no, uh, no stranger whatsoever to a uh, distress situations and, uh, and kind of fighting to, uh, to make sure he right. drives those profits. Uh, another example, uh, or great kind of legendary trade is John Paulson with the credit default swaps. Tell us that story.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, As you all know, that you know Michael Lewis has written a very famous book called The Big Short, where he talks about you know Steve Eisman, Michael Burry, and Jamie Mai, who also bought credit default swaps. So credit default swaps are basically insurance against the collapse of these mortgage-backed securities. And uh, so basically, if you buy if you buy insurance, you know you pay a small premium, but then you know when uh, shit hits the fan, you get paid a massive amount uh, a massive amount back. So uh, so that was sort of that was sort of what these credit default swaps are. They're basically insurance. And John Paulson um, that realized that you know, the the housing bubble was about to pop, and he went ahead and bought a ton of these uh, credit default swaps on. Uh, some of the worst mortgage backed securities and uh, as we know in hindsight a lot of the things that were actually rated aaa were not actually aaa you know a lot of the underlying mortgages in those aaa mortgage backed securities were actual you know, actually garbage you know actual rubbish um, and so when you uh, when you have uh, when you have something that's triple a uh, the the insurance on it is very cheap because the risk that they go under is very very low uh, so John Paulson was able to buy some extremely cheap uh, insurance on uh, these mortgage-backed securities, and he ended up net- netting about four billion dollars for himself personally. You now, this is documented in a great book by itself called "The Greatest Trade Ever" by Gregory Zuckerman, which I think you know all your listeners should read. I think that was a, that was an absolutely insane book. So.
0: And again, it seems like the same uh, same thing, you know, same story, which is courage uh, and conviction, and doing it in size really kind of benefited mm-hmm. here, right?
1: Right, exactly. It's it sort yeah. of like you know, it's that sort of like the framework for you know all these trades. Number one, uh, it's usually a, a, you know it's very asymmetric, and you know you you usually make it in a lot of size, and you know you end up making a, a ton of money from it. So, uh, just so you know, that's sort of what is common in all these trades.
0: For sure. Let's uh, wrap up with John Arnold uh, and the natural gas trade of two thousand and six.
1: Mm-hmm. So at the time Amaranth Advisors was basically this multi strategy fund that had taken a lot of these, uh, had taken a lot of positions in natural gas and um so the guy who trades now, who traded natural gas for amaranth his name is Brian Hunter and he was sort of on the other side of John Arnold's bet so if John Arnold uh, John Arnold was long uh, you know uh, Brian Hunter would be short and vice versa and in general you know the, in general these traders pretty much ran the natural gas market back then. So what ended up happening was that John Arnold. Um, uh, so what ended up happening was that in 2006, Brian Hunter made some extremely bad bets, and uh, I'm not aware, off the top of my head, whether he was long or short. Uh, but he made some extremely bad bets, um, and John Arnold was on the other side of, this, uh, of these trades at his uh, at his own hedge fund named Centaurus Fund Management. Um, he Uh, he took the other set of these bets. And what ended up happening was that Amarant Advisors went under. So they had about $6 billion in management and uh, they were all dedicated to these bets on natural gas. And none of these bets came good. And they ended up losing everything. And in 2006, the collapse of Amarant Advisors was the largest hedge fund collapse in history at that time. So I think that's That's sort of what makes the story insane. Number one, the scale of the collapse. So it's the largest hedge fund collapse. Number two, uh, you know, there's a, there's just pretty much just one guy on the other side who's making a lot of money off of this. So that was just John Arnold, who made six billion dollars for his fund, and he made about three billion dollars for himself as well, if I remember correctly. There's a, a good book on this called Hedgehogs by Barbara Dreyfus, I believe. Um, that that documents this entire story as well. I think that was a that's another that's another interesting and exciting book that I you know I think everyone should read.
0: So yeah. yeah. You know a lot about these stories. How do you learn about all of them? Like, if somebody's at home and they say, "Hey, I want to learn about uh, you know more of the greatest trades in history," what would you suggest they do?
1: So you know, number one, it's usually I have sort of uh, an obsession with learning about finance. So uh, so that's sort of where uh, where that comes from. So where the uh, need for me to go and read about these stories comes from. And the second thing is, I think that there's a lot of extremely cool books that are written that. Have been written about, you know, about how these uh, trades work. So, for example, I mentioned a couple of them: the greatest trade ever, hedgehogs, and one of the other books that, uh, that's uh, you know really worth reading is the Sebastian Mallaby book, More Money Than God. So, it's usually a combination of reading, being extremely curious, and you know, if you read a lot, you're going to stumble on things that you know you never knew existed. You're going to you're going to end up stumbling on things that you, know, you never uh, you know, that you want to go ahead and research. So for example, when I was researching about, you know, how currencies work, I stumbled on the, uh, on Soros breaking the bank of England. So, and then I went on to read a lot more about it. So I read pretty much everything I could You know all the stories, especially number one, it's really interesting. You know, it's such a large amount of money that's involved. That's one thing that attracts me to it. The other thing that, the other thing is, you know, I'm a huge fan of people like Stanley who who is one of the greatest investors of all time. So, um, I know, that's sort of where it drives me yeah, and you know if people want to read more about them you know you could just you could simply google them you could end up um, you know you could, you could read several books about them i mentioned about three books um, and you know michael lewis is another uh, is another amazing author um, and you know there was a there was a comment about michael lewis the other day uh that if michael lewis wrote a book about the history of the stapler i would read it and uh <laughs> And I think you know that's what uh, that's what makes Michael Lewis so good. He's a really, really good storyteller. And so uh, the Big Short is an amazing book. Liars Poker is an amazing book. You know, they're both by Michael Lewis. So I think you know he's another awesome guy that you should check out.
0: Yeah, I uh, I think that uh, that is very very true. Uh, what's the biggest takeaways that you've had? So you've done probably more reading on finance than most people who are you know two three times your age. What are the takeaways uh, that you could kind of just tell people? Hey, after all this reading, here's you know two or three things uh, that is just a repeating pattern in every story.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so one thing is that pretty much every single you know successful trader has uh, simply avoided, or or you know investor has simply avoided things that they don't know a lot about. So they're pretty much stuck to their strategy. They're stuck to what they know. They've been very very you know keen on cutting losses. And, you know, when you're wrong, you, know, you just get out of the trade as soon as you know that you're wrong. And similarly, you know, cutting losses is a key part of, you know, being a successful investor. That's another thing that I've noticed. Uh, the third thing is, you know, they all sort of have an obsession with finance. It sort of takes over your life. And, you know, that's, uh, that's something that you spend doing, you know, that's that's something you spend uh, most of your day doing. So, for example, Warren Buffett, he's uh, he spends most of the day reading annual reports and and I think that's true for people like Soros and Druckenbiller and, you know, Paul Jesus Jones and whatnot. You know, these successful traders, they have an obsession with finance and it sort of takes over their life. They spend a lot of time doing it. They're friends invested in, uh, you know, in learning about uh, finance. And, you know, I think that's sort, of, that's sort of the hallmark of what makes these people great. So they stick to what they know. They cut. Um, they cut their losses quickly, and now they have an obsession or a passion for it. So I guess uh, those are the three main takeaways.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's absolutely fascinating how uh, the obsession turns into uh, this thing that drives them uh, to just find the trade. It almost feels like, in some weird way, uh, it's not the money, right? It's not the profit. Right. That's just the scoreboard. They're really just looking to uh, to understand what's that structural uh, mispricing, and then go mm-hmm. and uh, and exploit it. And then the uh, the profit merely just tells them, "Yes, you were right." In some weird way.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know. That's, yeah.
0: Awesome. Uh, well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. These stories are amazing. You'll have to come back and tell us more uh, in the future. But where can people find you on the internet, uh, or where can they listen to your podcast?
1: Absolutely. So uh, I've got a YouTube channel. So if you just search up my name, you know Shivatsan Prakash, S R I V A T S A N, and then space B R A K A S H. Uh, you know, you can find my uh, YouTube uh, on Twitter. You can find me at Elite Underscore Investor. And then, uh, you know, you can check out my podcast. You could just, you know, type market champions into your search bar and you'll probably find it. So, yeah.
0: The uh, the Twitter handle at Elite underscore investor has got to be one of my favorites that I've seen out there. So uh, I don't know why you chose that one, but that's a pretty good one. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for doing this Srivatsan and we'll have to do it again in the future.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's awesome speaking to you.